So please help me welcome my new friend from Columbus, Ohio, Sandy D. brought me out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock to stay. He put a song in my soul today, a song of his praises, singing hallelujah. My name is Sandy and I am definitely an alcoholic. Oh, you're a beautiful bunch of diseased people. Now that you've been seen in the room with a bunch of incurables, you just better stay here because you will no longer be accepted back out there. And one of the things you're going to have to look forward to is being scared as hell in Alcoholics Anonymous, especially when they put you up here in this hot seat. And that's what you get when you got a big mouth. First of all, I'd like to thank the committee whoever the committee is or was. I know part of the committee was Leon B. from Columbus, Ohio, and Larry and Esther. And, and I said thank you, but I don't really thank them. I, you know, I just have to say thank you because you told me I should. I'd also like to know if there's any Al-Anons in the house. Would you please raise your hand? Give the Al-Anons a hand. That's enough. That's enough. That's enough. We don't want to give them too much. Alanons are easily spoiled. But I admire anyone that can work those 12 steps without the problem of getting drunk if they don't, by God. I bring you greetings from the Poindexter Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am now uh, the group secretary for Poindexter Group. We meet every Friday night at 8 o'clock in Columbus, Ohio. If you're there, come and fellowship with us. Uh, if you'd like to know how to get there, give me a call or call central office, and I'm sure that they will put you in contact with someone in, the, in that home group or maybe even just me myself. This is terrible. When I listened to the speaker last night, he talked about service. And I became secretary of the Poindexter Group in, in uh, the first of the year and it looked like everything started to happen to me you know and he touched on the things about the drunks complaining about things in the group <laughs> and they told me why are you getting uh, those kind of donuts and I said I tell you what they sell those donuts at the Dunkin Donut or Jolly Pirates go get some of the kind you like and I guarantee you nobody will ask you for one you can eat them all you know so they left me alone about that and then they started up on me about, you better have a GSR, and you better have a DCM, and you better have a treasure, and you better, you know, you just better do this, and you better do that. And if you don't do it, there's not going to be no AA for blacks. And I thought, Jesus Christ, who cares? You know. The majority is the Appalachians, and I mean, we're following them. What do you want? You know, and I went home with a headache, you know. I said, these drunks are getting on my nerves, and I'm going to tell them what to do with that group. And Leon B. called me that Saturday morning, and he talked to me. And he said, now, when you get up front, they're going to start hitting you and kicking you, and you, you know, get ready for it. 
I said, I wish I had known that they would be punching on me like that. I'd have been ready, you know, and I wasn't ready. Then I had another incident coming up on this conference. There was some awards that were written up for me, and they used Alcoholics Anonymous in the write-up. Oh, no, that was the worst thing they could do. And one of my AA members said to me, that's a real good article, Sandy, you know, but do you think they should have said Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, you know, I don't think they even knew that they shouldn't have. And when I hum like that, I'm pissed, you know. And I thought, why, you SOB, you can't even say that's real good and pat me on the back and take that with you, you know. So he took it, and, of course, the Area 53 delegate got a hold of it, and they... And he talked to me and says, we're going to, I had to write a letter to New York. And I started to say, well, whoop-de-doo, you know. I said, I wasn't even, I didn't proofread the thing, so don't give me a hard time, you know. I'm thinking to myself. So I said, well, shoot, you know. And he told me about it. And and before he could tell me that he was sending me a letter, they had wrote it again in in the book again about another award that they put me in for, for public service, you know, helping the recovering drunks on my job. I told him, I said, well, they wrote it again. Well, perhaps I should contact. I said, you should. You know, and I was pissed. I was pissed. <laughs> and I thought, these AAs, you know, and then this little voice, and I know you know about the super salesman, said to me, you know, huh, you got yours. You got a good home. You got a nice car. You got a good job. You know what to do to stay sober. You don't need to go to no more meetings. You don't need to sponsor nobody. You don't need to go to, you don't, the heck with them. And I looked around and I thought, and I heard Charlie Perry from Cleveland, Ohio, and he's dead now, but he was in my life at one time in my recovery. And I remember he said, AA is designed for good living. And he said, I wouldn't want a person's mind that doesn't attend AA meetings on a regular basis and does not work this program. And I told that voice what to do and where to go and how long it could stay. You know, because that's not how it works. And then another little voice said to me, today you are part of the solution. You are no longer a part of the problem for society. And I said, all right, let's get it on. You know. And then I got nervous again because I had to do this. This morning when I opened my big book, of course, I was a good alcoholic. I opened it to how it works because my sponsor said, open the book and wherever your eyes fall, read it. And of course, it fell on page 68 in great big letters, now about sex. And I said, oh, that's a good topic. <laughs> you know, that's a real good topic. And then I thought, I read a little bit of it, and I said, nah, I better not share with them about sex, you know. (laughs) And my favorite is the doctor's opinion, and I opened it to that. And it says, there is the type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brands or his environment. There is a type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. There is a manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are types entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, 
may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And then as I was reading this about sex, you know, I said, well, let's see. What can I share with them about sex? And I got the answer on page 70. In this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. If you have already made a decision and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, you have made a good beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. And that's all I can tell you about sex. Now, I guess we'll have to fasten our seatbelts because I'm getting ready to take you on a little trip. I told you I was an alcoholic, and I'm definitely an alcoholic. And I was a little bit concerned about the fact that me being the kind of alcoholic that I am, I also experimented with a lot of other mind-removing chemicals. Some of those being heroin, cocaine, Ritalin's, tall ones, pollutants, cough syrup with codeine, you know, some of that good stuff where you can pass out and come to, you know, some of that marijuana where you cough and choke almost to death, and people say, don't blow out the smoke, it's good. You go, <laughs> just to get high. Now that's going to any length, and I did that a lot. A whole lot. But I arrived in rooms like these September the 8th, 1979. My sobriety date is December the 15th, 1979. Why? Because I took a drink, by golly. You know, when I got out of treatment, they said don't drink and go to meetings and stay away from those people that you used to be around. I did the best I could. I went by the bootleggers every day to get a ride to the meeting. That's the best I could do, you know. But I did keep going. And I went to a lot of meetings. And I'm nervous, so I don't even know what I said just then. I think I said I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous in September of 1979. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But if I didn't, I repeated it just now, if you didn't hear me the first time. It was on a Sunday morning, it was a real pretty bright day, and I was miserable, and I didn't know why, and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And when I get as nervous as I am now, I, I use the 12 steps to share with you about me. Now, when I got into, when I went into detox, and I walked through those doors, and I talked to this lady, she told me that she understood but before I got to detox, I went to a place at University Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, called Upham Hall, because I wanted to be admitted for being insane. You know, I had met a man that would go there kind of on a regular basis, you know, and he would uh, get uh, medication to help get him calm down from the, the Ritalins and the Wild Irish Rose we were drinking, you know. And so I remembered that place because his mother and his sister said that's where he was at. And I went up there. And this doctor told me that I needed treatment for the use and abuse of alcohol and any other mind-removing chemicals that I had ingested into my body. 
And the only reason I listened to her is because I was born and they tried to raise me in Dayton, Ohio. And this lady says she was from Dayton, Ohio, so I trusted her and I believed that she knew what she was talking about because nobody in Columbus knew what was wrong with me. So I asked her, you know, I said, can I, can I call this place? You know, she gave me a list. And I called and I remembered that I had picked up a gal there, the bootlegger sent me to get her on Alum Creek Drive. And I remembered that place and I thought, well, it must be a hospital. You know, because she was nice and clean, and she had her suitcase, and we got drunk afterwards. So I said, well, I, you know, I'll try this place, and I called. And the lady told me, she said, how soon can you get here? And I said, as soon as my truck can come in that direction. Because I was with one of those fellows that I had met in a bar and had been with him from Friday to Saturday to Sunday, and he was ugly as hell. I don't know about you, but I used to wake up with some of the most horrible-looking people I've ever seen in my life. They looked good when I left with them. But I um, was admitted into detox. And I remember that this lady, her name was Sandy Stone. I told her, you know, that I drank alcohol and I named all the other drugs and, that I had ingested into my body on different periods of time. And she told me she understood and I believed her. And I remember her wheeling me back in a wheelchair. And then the next thing I remember is somebody gave me some designer pajamas with stripes, you know, one size fits all. And they told me to put them on and put my clothes in this green garbage bag. Now, I was real familiar with the garbage bag because that was my luggage by this time. You know, designer glad, you know. And so I don't remember. The next thing I remember is somebody telling me to take off my clothes and put them in this bag. And I remember them ha having a handful of pills. You know? And one of those pills I remember, it was Librium. And I thought, all right, you know, free. You know, I don't have to pay for it. Don't even have to beg you to give it to me, you know, or figure out how I can con you into letting me have one, you know. So I took them happily, you know. Then the next thing I remember is we were going to a meeting. And one of the things I did remember was this fellow that I saw. And I don't know about you, but I'm a real good female alcoholic, and I know a good man when I see one. And he had on pajamas, too. And he looked good to me. And I thought to myself, I remember these thoughts. If I had him, I wouldn't have no problem. Well, I don't know about that. The next thing I remember is being in a meeting. And I heard a lady talk. She was very young, and her name was Amy. And I thought to myself... If she could do that and she's so young, I ought to be able to do it. I think I was about 35 years old then. And that was my next thought. If she can do it, I can do it. The next thing I remember is someone telling me to be quiet in the meeting. You know how you have conversations in the, you know, they're just talking, and I was talking to my friend who came to see about me, you know, I was in detox. And I remember that I told this lady, you know, I said, you don't tell me to be quiet. You know, I was going to fight in the meeting. 
And I remember this little lady that was in charge of us. She said, I told you not to bother those sick people. And I thought, who's sick, you know? Well, I had on the pajamas. That lady had on her street clothes, you know? So I thought, well, you know, okay. Then they introduced me to uh, a counselor, and he made me puke. I was, I just couldn't stand him. You know, I just didn't, I don't know, something about him didn't set right with me, and I started puking like he wouldn't believe. So they gave me another counselor, and I fell in love with him. Now, you see, I fell in love twice already in detox. <laughs> so he told me, you know, that I should go into treatment, and uh, I, had, I had two daughters with me, and uh, there I was, you know. So I didn't know what treatment was, never heard of it. The only treatment that I had received in my uh, travels with alcohol and, and abuse of other chemicals was uh, jail, 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 methadone, prison, probation, jail. You know, and they said I needed treatment. I thought, yeah, <laughs> you know, okay. So I went into treatment. Didn't know anything about AA. The only A's I ever saw was AAA. Three years of recovery, I got in AAA. And I thought to myself, another thought. Where's all the black people at? You know, I drank with black people a lot until I got real drunk and went on the west side or down on Parsons Avenue, and I'd go in them kick joints, and I'd say, give me a Kessler's and Coke, just like everybody else. You know, I wasn't scared. I was looking around for him, and I remembered something, and this is not to show any kind of uh, prejudice or reflection. I want to throw that in so you won't say, well, I wonder if she's prejudiced. No, she's not. My grandmother told me this. Clarabelle Head, she's dead now, but she was a lady, and she loved me unconditionally. She told me when I was a little girl, she said, white people have the best of everything, Cassandra, and if you want it and you have to hang out with them, do it. And I remember that. I remember that. And I know she's proud. <laughs> so I decided to heck with those people that I knew. They wasn't in these rooms. So I latched on to them. You know, and they loved me. You know. They, and I got introduced to the 12 steps. And the first step says we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Now, that was very true for me, you know, because by this time I had been to the women's prison and, and I had been to jail a lot and, you know, and I had got introduced to that newfound miracle drug for heroin addicts called methadone and my doctor took me off. He said, no way are you going to be on that garbage, you know, and uh, so there I was, you know. So I said, I got to take a good look at myself, you know, and you had to write all this stuff down. And I knew I was powerless, but I didn't accept it. That's why my sobriety date changed to December the 15th, because it was then that I accepted. You know, admitting it was one thing, but accepting it was another thing. Because I got out of treatment in October of 1979, and I took a drink for my birthday, which is October 24th. I don't know about you, but I always took a drink for my birthday. You know, and I went to the meetings, and I told them I took a drink. They said, keep coming back. We love you. Don't drink, you know, and I took a drink in November, you know, 
Why? Because I was still going by the bootleggers after the meeting and before the meeting. And this particular night I went by after the meeting and I took a drink. And I went to the meeting and I told him I took a drink because I don't know why I kept telling you that. You know, you didn't, you weren't with me, you know. They said, keep coming back and don't drink, you know. So I did what you're supposed to do when you're a real drunk. You keep going to the places they tell you not to go to, you know. Somebody at that bootleg joint gave me a, some marijuana and I smoked it and I went to the meeting because I went to discussion meeting every day and I went to the open speakers meeting every night. They said, however you drank, that's the way you go to meetings. If you drank all day and all night, you go to meetings all day and all night. Today they have them almost all night, you know. So there I was. And I went to the meeting and I told them, I said, I smoked some marijuana. And somebody said, don't drink, go to meetings, read the big book, get a sponsor. And way back in the room, somebody said, and don't smoke no more marijuana. And I heard that. And I thought, I got to try this. I got to try this. Because I didn't know anything about, and I'm glad I remembered my water is here. I'm getting thirsty. It'll help me to demonstrate about one drink. I didn't know anything about one drink or one of anything. You know, let's drink it up and get some more. You know, don't fool around with <laughs> Here you are. <laughs> uh-uh. Drink that drink. Drink it. So I knew, for me, it wasn't going to be any of that. You know, so I started trying. And it's amazing. Since I started trying, I haven't smoked any marijuana. I haven't been to jail. I haven't had any drinks, you know, and I prided myself on being able to drink moonshine straight, you know, and I prided myself on trying to drink like people from West Virginia, because that's who's in Columbus, <laughs> West Virginians, and then some drinking folks, trust me. So I knew I had to try, and that's what I began to do. The second step talked about being restored to sanity. Now, I told you I went to that program of up in the hall trying to get admitted for being insane. But somewhere along the way, I forgot that I had tried to get admitted for being insane, and I got insulted about that second step. I'm not insane. You know, and they pointed it out to me in treatment, you know. What are the, some of the things that you did? You know, and I have a, a daughter who was the oldest child, and at that time she was a teenager when I came in the program, and she reminded me of something that I didn't remember. You know, she said, Mama, you remember telling me to jump out of a moving car and putting a gun to your head at, at, at uh, her grandmother's house? I didn't remember that, you know. And sane mothers do not. I have a daughter 12 years of age, and sane mothers do not drink alcohol and use Ritalin's during their pregnancy, all during their pregnancy, smoke marijuana, all during their pregnancy. They just don't do that. They just don't do that. And they pointed that out. So I knew that I needed to be restored to sanity. And I still do today. It's a lot better today. You know, I, sometimes I go off on people, you know, act insane. I did here about a month ago. I picked up a new gal. <laughs> this is funny. 
And I had my sister in the car with me. And this little gal had just got out of Marysville, out of the women's prison, you know. And we were going to Taco Bell, you know, making a run for the border. And I turned in, and before I could get to the Taco Bell, a little gal came flying, and her car was kind of out of control. And I thought, what is wrong with her? And she was of the Caucasian persuasion, and she was, everybody was giving me the finger and stuff. And I thought, what's wrong with her? And before I could get into the, somebody was behind me, honk, 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 and I turned around, and it was two more of them of the Caucasian persuasion. And I said, hold it. And I got out of the car. I said, what is this? Pick on black people day or what? You know? They said, we didn't. I said, what is this? And they, they said, we were telling you to. I said, did you see that lady? She said, yeah, I was wondering what was wrong with her, too. So you see, I still need to be restored to sanity. Because them two little young gals could have got out and whooped my behind from me. <laughs> and made me take the first step again. I'm powerless. Over that whipping they was going to give me. <laughs> But I still need to be restored to sanity, and I'm glad I know that. You know, it's different if you don't know that, and I know that. Made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And you know, I feel myself kind of rushing a little bit, and I don't know why. Y'all haven't got nowhere to go. <laughs> Out there in the sunshine and say, oh, wasn't that something? <laughs> well, I don't know how long I'm going to talk. Just hold on. <laughs> but... In making a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, I wasn't about to do that. There was no way. I told him when I was in treatment, I said, you know, God did a lot of things to me. My first husband set my house on fire to collect fire insurance money, and we got a divorce, and I was in church, and in, in Pentecostal church, and my grandmother said that if it's God's will, you'll have a good job, a nice car, a good husband. And I was trying to figure out what happened to God's will for me, because wasn't none of this happening, you know? I couldn't figure that out. I really couldn't. It, it had me baffled. And I was thinking to myself, I'm not going, you know, if I can get by without God, you know, I'll be all right. And I told this minister that was in the program, and he said, Sandy, just stay in these rooms and stay sober for a year, and then come back and we'll talk about God, you know? And I said, Okay. Okay, you know. But I kept coming to these rooms, and I kept coming to these rooms, and I kept listening, and people kept sharing. And I kept hearing these leads, you know, I can't say stories or horror stories. They were, to me, they were testimonies of recovery and how we go all the way down or halfway down. Whatever happens, we recover. And they kept mentioning God. And see, I wasn't a real smart person either. I didn't read the book when I first came. Because I couldn't read the book. Every time I tried to read the big book, the words would get real blurry. And I couldn't remember nothing. The only thing I could remember was, rarely have we seen a person fail. And sought through prayer and medication. That's what I kept hearing. Because I used to do that a lot. But I kept coming, and it dawned on me with a little help from God. You see, I met another man, and I was engaged. And I found out that if you're warm and happy in a pile of poop, keep your mouth shut, so I didn't marry this guy. And I had accumulated this, this furniture bill and a few other bills, and how was I going to pay him? And my sponsor told me, she said, God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself, and I didn't believe that at all. 
I knew she didn't know what she was talking about because I knew God hadn't done nothing for me. You know, three years of recovery and he still hadn't done nothing for me. I kept looking for it and waiting on it. By this time I was employable and I had a car, you know, and I had to surrender, you know. I applied for a loan to consolidate my everything, my bills and everything, to get them paid up, and uh, they turned me down. And I worked for the uh, financial institution at that time. And I went down in the basement where I, where I would go a lot, and I put my hands up over my head, and I said, God, you said you would do for me what I cannot do for myself. And that's when I surrendered to God, because I was powerless and I couldn't do anything about it. And I didn't know how I was going to make it. The very next morning when I came into work, the president of the credit union said, Sandy, I understand you have a problem. And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I want you to come in my office at 9 o'clock. And I said, yes, sir. And I went into his office and he explained to me that he had looked over the loan and he said that he had decided that they would give me the loan. And I knew then that God had made him think it was his own idea. I knew that. And that's when I surrendered to God. I got married to him. I called my sponsor. I said, I got married to God. She said, you're going to make it. Four-step inventory. Boy, was that hard. Got engaged. I was engaged when I did my four-step inventory, when I completed it. I had been writing, and I'd hide it under the mattress, and I'd write, and I'd hide it under the mattress, and I'd write, and I'd hide it under the mattress. And I thought, well, maybe the reason I can't marry this guy is because I haven't done my inventory. I haven't completed it, you know, and I haven't did my fifth step. So that's probably why I can't marry this guy. Something's holding me back from surrendering to marrying this guy, you know. So I completed my fourth step, and I got with Father Bob White, who was a recovering alcoholic who has gone to the big meeting in the sky since then. And in my inventory, I discovered one of my major defects of character. Somebody else's husband, somebody else's boyfriend, girlfriend, dog, cat. I always wanted somebody else's, you know. And that was one of the biggies for me, you know. And after I did my fifth step and everything and it was completed and I tore up my fifth step and got on the freeway and let the pieces blossom, so they can put that together. They're good, you know. Read what I wrote down, especially all the different men, you know. God. And I wondered why when I first came in this program and I gave my little first lead and I talked about your husband that I used to like and your husband I used to like, and them women was looking at me like, who she think, who she think gonna give her a hug? You know. They was watching their husband, honey, come on now. You know, I was looking, you know. But I kept hanging in there, and the one thing that the father said to me was, you don't let go of that overnight, but you try. And I did. Not just, you know, I got to let go, I got to let go, I just let go. And I had that desire, and I was able to do that. I was able to do that. And I had been dating the fellow that I'm with now for a year, and I was sitting in a meeting, and a fellow talked about that defect in character and it dawned on me I had been with the one man for a year nobody else and he belonged to me he was single when I met him 
Wow, you know, that blew me away, you know. It just happened because I tried. And everything that has happened is because I keep trying. The fifth step says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, and I shared with you that I was willing to do that. And To me, the sixth and seventh step go hand in hand, and I don't, I'm not uh, one to tell you that I know everything, but those are my feelings, and that's the way I feel about it. Plus, I heard someone say that if you are trying to incorporate the 12 steps of recovery in your life, your defects of character will automatically be removed. You just can't hold on to that stuff. You know, you just can't fool around like you used to fool around. You know, you know you, I don't know about you, but I used to have like three or four different guys calling me, you know. And I'd say, hello. Like, hello. Hello. You know, because I didn't know who was calling me and I wasn't going to be, you know, I only could see one. You know, sick, you know. And it feels real good today because when I answer the phone, I say, hello. You know, and you know, I know. That is not, you know, I am not paranoid about who's calling. You know, I'm not paranoid about that today. You know, and that's a good feeling. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And all those people were in my fourth step inventory. You know, and I wasn't about to make amends to uh, my mother. You know, not right away. I thought, well, you know. I will one day, you know. And I wasn't going to make a verbal amends to my children. I was just going to not drink and be a good mother, you know. Well, my sister came in the program. And I think it was her first or second year in recovery. She said, Sandy, I want you to go with me to make amends to Mama. And my mother had heard me lead at a breakfast meeting. By you know, by this time she had heard me lead, and by this time she had begun to accept me in the home. I remember when I would be using, and I'd call her to go over for Thanksgiving dinner. She'd say, "I don't have enough food," and Mama had five kids at home, but she didn't want me in there. You know, she didn't want me around. You know. So we went to make amends to my mother together. It was at Christmas time, and I'm the devil of the family. And I said to her, I said, Mama, what is it about your house that makes your kids want to commit suicide in there? And she said, I don't know. You know, because I found out that not only had I tried to commit suicide twice in my mother's house, my sister had tried to commit suicide twice. So, you know, and she, she was real sincere about it, and then we, we made amends to my mother, you know. And it's amazing. We made amends to my mother. She got married. She got her some teeth. She got her house fixed up. All because we quit drinking. You know, shoot, I couldn't believe it. You know? Now, my oldest daughter was with me and uh, when I was really, really into my abuse and my little baby daughter. And I had never verbally made amends to my oldest daughter, you know, and I heard Don from Colorado, and he said that he had never really made amends to his son. And he said he told him he appreciated him being there to help take care of his younger brother. So I called my daughter when I got home from that conference that night, and I said, Patia, I want to thank you for taking care of Nicole when I was drinking. And she said, who suggested you do that? 
you know, because she has not. She still lets me know. I know that she was drunk, you know, and you ain't all that great, Mom, you know. She has her little way of doing it to me, you know. And I told her, I said, it was suggested in a meeting, and I said, I want to thank you. She said, you're welcome, <laughs> you know, like, you know, don't get excited because I'm not, you know. <laughs> and that little son of mine that I left at a babysitter and didn't go back to get him, two years of recovery, I found out where he was at and got him back home and had a lot of problems with him. He was acting out his anger, you know, but... The only way I could make amends to him was to provide a good home for him and be a strong mother for him and not allow him to push off his stuff on me. And we had to get professional help for him and for myself. So, you know, when he did things, I said, hey, you told me I didn't have to hurt alone and I didn't have to put up with that stuff alone. And so I reached out. And through a program called Youth Advocate Association, they helped, you know, get him together not only that, he didn't belong to me. He belonged to the state of Ohio. Because when I went to women's prison, they had put him in foster care. My uh, family had put him in foster care. So I did the best that I could, you know, by being there for him and putting my arms around him and telling him that I loved him and that I wanted him with, with the two girls and myself. And the reward from that was the state gave him back to me. They gave me the papers that say he is your child again. He is your son. Legally, he is yours. He cannot be adopted. And not long after I got those papers, he got arrested. He was 17. He was driving a stolen car. And I said, what were you doing driving a stolen car? He said, oh, Mom, it was such a nice car. I said, boy, it wasn't your car. How could it be nice? You know, anything nice is supposed to be your own. I said, why didn't you do that when you belong to the state? Why didn't you do it then? <laughs> you know, God takes care of us, though. We, we got an attorney that, that uh, my counselor knew at work and, and didn't cost us the money it would have cost us. You know, and he, we made it through that. He made it through that program and came out with a certificate and with flying colors, you know. He's doing okay. So I've had an opportunity to make amends gradually to my family, to my children. You know, and my son, he's made me a grandmother three times. And I got a little granddaughter. She's a year old. Her name is Antoinette Bell. My middle name is Bell. And my son said, Mama, we're going to name her Bell because the middle name, Bell, is a traditional name. My grandmother's name was Clara Bell. My mother's name is Ora Bell. My name is Cassandra Bell. And my cousin's name is Olivia Bell. And now we got Antoinette Bell. You know, and that was rewarding because I didn't know he remembered it. And the most rewarding part about it was the fact that my daughter-in-law, when she went into labor, I was there. And she's of the Caucasian persuasion. And I'm very proud of that. And I was there, and she, I was rubbing her belly. She said, it hurts right here. And if you'd have told me I'd been rubbing a white girl's belly years ago, I told you, you crazy. You crazy. But that put a bond between us and a closeness between us. And her, she calls me up and she says, hi, Sandy, how you doing? And I say, hi, Angie. And we talk about how much we love each other and how the children are doing. And I know God did that for me. And I'm grateful. I am grateful.
My son called me Monday or Tuesday and told me that he had got into a fight and he drilled this guy, beat him up real bad, and he's a guard for Lucasville Prison. And Mom, I want to come home, and I got an alcohol problem, and I'm an alcoholic, and I want to come home. And I said, you can't come home. I said, where are you going to stay if you come home? I can stay in the basement. I said, oh, no, you can't stay in the basement. You're grown now. Well, I'm going to go to jail. I know they're going to come and get me on my job, and they're going to take me to jail. And I said, well, you can't come back here. And I said, did you call Bob in the program that I told you? I can't find his number. He says, I'm history, Mom. I'm history. Click up. And I said to myself, you're right. You're right. And if you live and don't die, you'll be just like me. You'll be history. And you'll be recovering, too, if you're a real alcoholic. And you find this program, you know, that's him. And I had to let, I've learned to let go. You know, I can't be going home or going to bed or, or going to work with the children or anything else on me. You know, I just can't carry it around. It, co- it costs too much and it weighs too much. I can't handle it. You know, and lack of power is what causes a dilemma for me and him. I know he was powerless because he didn't know what was going to happen. And I was powerless because I couldn't do nothing about it. So I hold on to it. But I did get on my knees and I trusted God. And I'm still trusting God because I haven't heard from him since he's history. He hasn't called me. The ninth step said, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Now, I wasn't about to make amends to the dope man. No way. And I wasn't going to make amends to my little girl's father. Old lady, you know, saying, I'm sorry I got pregnant, you know, and had this baby. So I said, well, I just won't have no more babies by him. And Leon B. said, "Uh uh-uh, that ain't the way you do that. When you see that lady, you tell her that you're sorry. You make amends to that lady. I said, okay, Leon, okay, no problem. But I hope I see her in these rooms because I know she carries a pistol in her pocketbook. I know what she got in her pocketbook. And I know it can happen because one of the other little ladies that... My daughter's father had escapades with when I was pregnant with her. She said something to me, and of course, being the good alcoholic that I am, I told her what I could do and how far she could go, and I reached for it, and I was five months pregnant. And they said, no, 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 you're pregnant. I said, let me at her, you know. Well, I'm here to tell you, she came in this program, and she asked me to be her sponsor. She didn't stay, but she asked me to be her sponsor, and that was not important anymore. The most important thing was that she was reaching out for help. And I didn't say, you remember when I was going to? No. I said, I'll be glad to. So I know it can happen for her, too. I know it can happen. Five years of recovery, and I'm coming out of I had led an anniversary, and I was on my way to the AA club in Dayton, Ohio, and I saw this beautiful Cadillac, and I saw this dog in the car, and that didn't impress me. I don't like dogs that much. And this guy said, why didn't you turn off the so-and-so lights? You know, because the lights were on on the interior. And I looked. And I said, Charlie, this is Sandy. I said, how you doing? I told him I was in Alcoholics Anonymous, and in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, they tell us that we have to make amends, and I want to make amends to you for the ounce of dope I didn't pay you for. And I looked around. I knew I wasn't talking. I knew that was God. And he said, you know, Sandy, I don't remember. And I said, thank God for amnesia. I was so glad. I was glad he didn't remember. Because I knew this man, and I knew his capabilities, you know. To put it mildly, <laughs> he didn't play, but he didn't remember, and I'm grateful. Trust me, I am. 
continued to take a personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And I try to do that on a, on a regular basis. First of all, I try not to be wrong today. I try to stay out of that conflict. You know, I was talking to a lady, uh, and she changed jobs like every year, you know. And I said, girl, I said, let me tell you something. I can't handle that kind of anxiety. You know, I don't like changing jobs. I like my job, and I'm going to stay on my job. You know, I can't handle that. You go ahead, you know, because I can't handle that, you know. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of my, of, of my uh, talk that this guy told me about Alcoholics Anonymous, and you think they should have had to put that in there and this and that. And I was thinking to myself, I should cuss him out. I really should. I should say, you look, and he, because he has never really heard me, really hasn't seen my other side, period. And I thought, I'm, I know what I'll do. Let him say something else to me at work. And I'm going to tell him, you so-and-so, and I'm going to read him real good, and he'll know. But I can't do that today. That's not part of me today. You know, it doesn't fit anymore. It doesn't even feel good, you know, so it doesn't happen. That way I don't have to promptly admit to him that I shouldn't have cussed him out, you know. So through prayer and meditation. Now, you heard me say I always heard medication, and I still hear it sometimes in these rooms when you read it. Sometimes I hear saw through prayer and medication, you know, and I say, uh-oh, what's going on? You know, because that happened to me so much in my recovery before I came into the program. But today I hear meditation and I've learned. And I have a conscious contact with God. And I know that he has taken care of me all this time. And I trust him with my life. I trust him with my family and all of my friends. And I took him a lot of places, and I know he was ashamed to be there, but he didn't leave me. You know, he went into the women's prison with me when they said one to five. You know, he was with me in the county jail when I hung myself and tried to commit suicide in there. And so I hung some sheets. I'm good, good, I'm real good, honey. Tied the sheets by the panic button they have in county jail. Just in case I changed my mind, you know. Somewhere between those sheets around my throat, I did change my mind. And God was with me. He was with me. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to the alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. And I try to do that. And I've been to many institutions. And I've been back to Marysville where I was there. You know. And I let those ladies know that if I can do it, you can do it. And nobody cares if you've been to the penitentiary anyway. Do you want to stay sober? That's what we want to know. Do you want to not drink and do drugs? That's what we want to know. That's all. That's the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. Or whatever your problem is. If you have a desire to stop it. And that's real important for me. It's real important for me to remember. I have had many opportunities to go in front of the different judges in Columbus, Ohio. And I don't have to walk up there with my head down like this. You know, I, you, I don't know about you, but I always hung my head when I got in front of Judge so-and-so, whoever it might be. And today I can hold my head up and I can talk to the judge. And I can sit on the front row with the lawyers and the probation officers. And that's progress, <laughs> trust me. You know. And today I'm part of the solution and not part of the problem. 
and that's important for me. I'm starting to feel real, 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 real good because that means I'm finished. (laughs) The one thing that I did not do, and I know that they don't know that I'm going to do this, is to ask my sister and my baby with 51 days to stand up. Thank you. My baby is the one in the purple. The other one looks just like me. And, and she can tell you the other half of the story after the meeting. The last thing I want to remember to say is that we were trying to decide how we were going to come to this conference. And the first thing I did, being me, was ask the guy that got that has a Mercedes to drive me up here. <laughs> and then I thought about it and I said, nah, I don't want him to do that because I don't want people to think that I'm tramping because I'm not tramping today. And then my old man says, well, you can rent a car. And I thought, yeah, that's a real good idea. And this little new baby, I just met her at my home group. And I told her before she got out of treatment, I said, when you get out of treatment, find out if you can go to this conference with us, to this roundup. And she checked. And they told her, no, you you can't have that day off. Five other people want it. Monday, she called me and she said, is it this weekend that you're going away? And I said, yes, it is. It's this Friday. She said, they gave me that day. They gave me that day. We can take my car. We don't have to rent a car. And I said, see, I know God takes care of me. I know who takes care of me. I know that today because he rewards me and he reminds me. And if I could have just summed up my experience, my strength, and my hope with you, I would have said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm 